Welcome, welcome, welcome. All right, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to read along with a physical Bible, put your hands up and Richard Kapoor, he will get you a Bible. If you do have a Bible in your hands, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and we'll be reading from verse 7 through 9. Uh, we're in a series at the moment called Sanctifying the Ordinary. Sanctifying the ordinary. That word sanctifying means basically to make it holy or uh, to set it apart for special use. And we're trying to take different facets of ordinary Christian life or ordinary life and see how does this connect to my Christian faith? How do I be holy um, in different categories? So last week we looked at work. How do we sanctify work? How do we be holy and Christian? And, and how does our Bible relate to work? This week we're looking at the topic of singleness. Uh, a major category of people in our church, a major category of people in the world are those who are not yet married. They are single. And so we want to look at what does the Bible have to say about being holy as a single, living for Jesus as a single. As you may know, um, it's controversial in our day, but the Bible only has two categories uh, for those who are adults. Faithfully monogamous, monogamously married in a heterosexual relationship or celibate singleness. Neither of those two categories or even just you know, discreetly having those two categories is quite offensive in our day and age, but that is the way, the best way that God has designed our life for us. We have many different singles in our church um, who have different experiences and journeys with that category of celibate singleness. Some are mostly content with their call and station in life. Some find it very, very difficult. Some are single by choice. Some are single who strongly desire marriage. And some were previously married and are now a single. Um, they are divorced. Uh, and there's all different types of journeys and experiences that happen, highs and lows. And so the question we want to ask today is, how can we take our status as singles, not our identity, singleness is not your identity, our status as a single person and sanctify it? That is, make it holy. How can we live well as a single for Jesus? And as a church, how can we love our singles well? One passage one chapter in the Bible which deals with this extensively is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a great passage. I can't preach on it all today, but happy to sit down and do a Bible study with anyone on this passage. It's, there's heaps in it. But we're going to read verse 7 to 9. Paul says this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me pray. Our God and Father, I ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
a while back now, I was having a catch-up with Needy, and we were hanging out and having some time just talking about her life and her faith and her experience as, as a single woman and what it's like to be a single woman in our church. And I was quizzing her, how do we best serve singles? And she said, it's a minefield at times in, in, in different contexts where she's been. And then we had this idea, why don't we have a night, and this was her theme, I thought it was a great night, Tackling the Taboos of Singleness. That's a great title, by the way, and needy, maybe one night we can do it. Uh, we haven't done that night yet, but when I thought of this series of Sanctifying the Ordinary, one of the first topics that came to mind was, I need to preach on singleness to the whole church. This is vital category for us to think about, whether you're married or single, divorced, widowed, widower, everyone as a church needs to think about this topic. It's crucial for us all to understand, and not just the singles. So if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not single, but this is nice that there's a sermon for the singles. No, no, this is a sermon for everyone. And why does, why does that matter? Why, why is a message on singleness if you're not single for everyone? Well, I've got a, a number of reasons which I want to just outline as we begin to help us all get in on the journey. Firstly, the scripture he read is written to a whole church. It wasn't like a separate tract just for the single Christians in Corinth. No, it was for the whole church. Secondly, as I said, we're a body. And therefore, we need to address every aspect of the body in every stage and season and status. And even if it's not our status, we're called to love those who are single and love them well. And as I've seen through studying this week and really giving attention to it, there's so much I didn't understand uh, and there's so much goodness that I wasn't aware of in the role of singleness. And I think it will benefit us as a whole church and all of our life groups to study this topic. Thirdly, we need to study singleness because it can be very confusing, both in the world and in the church world. It doesn't matter whether you're in the world or in the church world. The idea of singleness needs explanation. Firstly, because singleness can be seen as like the worst thing ever. Uh, people can think of singles, they all think of themselves as just completely lonely. Perhaps they are seen as incomplete. The words even that I said at the beginning, celibacy, and if you add to it chastity and abstinence, are swear words in our culture. And so to, to put them together, you feel like, as one person said to me, it's like a rotten cherry on top of a cake. That's what you feel like as a single, especially those who have same-sex attractions. Because our sexuality has been conflated with our identity and our modern way of thinking, to say to someone that you are to remain celibate and pursue Christ and give up on romantic attraction as a same-sex attracted person is to say to them, you must fundamentally deny yourself and your entire being which is not what the, the Bible teaches about our sexuality, but it's what we learn from our culture and our philosophy and the past 200 years of thought. Sexuality is identity. Therefore, to suppress sexuality is to suppress a human being, which is discrimination and bad. That's what we instinctively think. Sam Albury, in his terrific book, Seven Myths About Singleness, which I bought a copy for all the singles in the church, but I left them at home. Uh, so I have a free copy for you. If you're single, I will get it to you. I want you to read it, and I'm going to buy a copy for all the life group leaders, uh, and I just want everyone to read it. I think it's a 
fantastic book. Uh, he says, in much of our thinking, singleness, if not downright bad, is certainly not seen as good. Even the way we describe singleness reflects this. It is almost always defined in the negative, as the absence of something. It's the state of not being married. It's the absence of a significant other. This defining by negation reinforces the idea that there's nothing intrinsically good about singleness. It is merely the situation of lacking what is intrinsically good in marriage. As one friend said to me, singleness is just not a nice word. <laughs> to be identified as a single is like putting a rotten cherry on top of a beautifully gifted cake. That's how it can feel. And sometimes married people, the church, parents, or extended family can look down on singles. Can look on them as like, oh, maybe they're selfishly independent. Or perhaps they're immature. And that getting married somehow makes you a more mature person, which it doesn't. Uh, you can be very immature and married and very immature as single, or vice versa. You can be very mature as married and very mature as single. Especially single men are beat up in our culture, and especially church culture. Uh, and there's a sense of which, just get your act together and get married. Um, and it's a very negative way of looking at the role and the gift of singleness. And then in all that, marriage can be held up as this like idyllic reality. Like marriage is this utopia, which... Marriage is wonderful, but it's certainly not that. And if you spend enough time with married people, you will know. And if you look at the divorce rate, you'll know. Uh, marriage doesn't live up to um, everyone's idyllic reality. On the flip side, singleness can be seen as the best thing ever. Um, married people can look on <laughs> and think, oh, wow, that would be interesting. Uh, or even in the world, uh, this idea of freedom and sexual liberation independence, not being chained to someone, having to do what they want, not having your needs hampered by their, uh, their needs. Do what you want when you want. And then marriage is seen as a bad thing, stifling, chafing, restrictive, dangerous. So we've got to avoid either ditch. We don't want to flip into this way of thinking either, that singleness is just epic. It's just like, yes, that's so good. Independence, do what you want when you want. No. So clearly we need clear thinking on this issue. Additionally, we must deal with the reality that not everyone in our church will marry. Some people in our church will remain single unto death. Singleness is not a season that changes. We just entered autumn and then winter, spring. For some people, singleness is not a season, it's a status. That's, and for every single, it is a status. It's who you are in that sense. It, it's your marital status. Not everyone in our church should marry, as this passage seems to suggest. And also, we must think about this as a whole church because, and this is a hard reality, but marriage, you need to realise that 50% of the married people in this room will be one day single again, either through death or divorce. And therefore, we ought to be thinking about it now. It's hard to think of, but that is the reality. Unless, in a, in a tragedy, you both die in, at the same time, every marriage will end with one spouse going before the other, and that spouse will become single again. And so now is the right time to think about it. So let us sanctify singleness today. Let's take this status and see how we can use it 
for the glory of Christ. I've got three points for us today and one main hope. If you're single, my hope is that you will receive and embrace singleness as a gift. And if you're married, I hope that you will look upon and understand that singleness is a gift. That's the key teaching of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's look at point number one, the story of singleness. Point number one is the story of singleness. It can help so much to to understand things in its context. And so what I want to do in this point is help us understand where does singleness fit into the whole story of the Bible, just in a brief overview. I want to trace the biblical narrative of marriage and singleness briefly to give us perspective. So as we know, the Bible begins um, in the garden. You have God creates the world, um, and then he creates man and woman, and then he gives them a charge. And I'll read you Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to 28. This is often called the creation mandate. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's plan in creation was to fill the earth with images of himself, living for him, worshipping him, being like him, and in one particular way, being like him in creative dominion, ruling making cities, planting gardens, building families, spreading his glory from east to west, north to south. And the way in which he makes, helps make that happen is he establishes marriage, a lifelong union between a man and a woman so they can have children safely and in a good relationship and accomplish the task together. If you go to Genesis 2, you'll notice that it's, it's like another account of creation, but from a different perspective. This time, we zone in on just the Garden of Eden, really, and the man and the woman. But it begins with just the creation of man, Adam, as a single man. He's given this rule, this, this creation mandate again, to rule the garden, take care, keep guard, watch the garden. And then the Lord said to him in verse 18 of chapter 2, "'It is not good that man should be alone.'" I will make a helper fit for him. Now, it can't be that Adam was lonely and just needed company. He had God, okay? So I think he was doing just fine. It's more that Adam had a task. He had a charge to fill the earth, literally, with images of God through the act of sexual procreation. And to do that, he needed a helper. He needed a complement. He needed a wife. And not just for the bearing of children, but for the joint task of actually ruling over creation. The creation mandate is given to man and woman. The man is the head of the home, but the woman is the helper. And God himself describes himself as a helper, so that's no small task. Now, obviously, next, in Genesis 3, you find out that they fall, they sin, and they're cast out of the garden. Their marriage relationship is put into disorder and is cursed. And so their mandate to fill the earth will now be full of thorns and thistles. The making of children will bring great hardship for the woman. And the adversary, they'll have an enemy in their task, Satan. He'll be biting at their heels, 
until one day, Genesis 3.15, there'll be a serpent crusher who will come and crush his head. And from here, in overview, the story of the Old Testament, babies are made, marriages are had, and bit by earth, the earth is filled. It's filled with goodness and filled with evil. Most of the focus is on marriages and families, and particularly one family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his 12 sons, the nation of Israel. But in all these families, they're fractured families with fractured images of God's glory. And in this, in the brokenness, there's actually not much attention brought on singles throughout the whole Old Testament. In fact, if anything, singleness is seen as quite a negative state, not bearing children, not contributing to the creation mandate. One prophet was single, the prophet Jeremiah, and he was called by God to be single, forbidden from marriage, but it was as a sign of the curse that God was putting on Israel. So it's not very encouraging. Um, There was actually no Hebrew word for a male bachelor. So there's no real concept that you would be unmarried in the Old Testament. But then enter Jesus. The picture starts to change. Christ comes from heaven to earth as the second Adam, the greater Adam, the perfect Adam, the true image of God himself. But he comes as a single man. Jesus never dated. Jesus never slept around. Jesus never married and was the most godly, holy, and joyful person who ever lived. Jesus was truly God, truly man, means he had male desires, totally single, yet completely fulfilled. Which is such a break from the whole story of the Old Testament. And then Jesus, the greater Adam, does the greater work than Adam. He goes to that cross so that he can crush Satan's head, defeat our fall and sin, and rise from the dead. And anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and looks to him as Lord and Savior, what's the promise? Well, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the new Adam, Jesus Christ, comes as single and he bears children, but they're spiritual children. And when Jesus tasks his disciples with their new mandate, He doesn't repeat the creation mandate, though that still exists and still hangs over us. He fulfills the creation mandate in a new way through what we call the Great Commission. And Jesus said to his disciples this. This is their mandate. This is our mandate. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Not procreate, not be fruitful and multiply, but make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, like we did for our four friends last week or two weeks ago, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so now our main task as the church in the new covenant under Christ is spiritual procreation, is actually to be making a spiritual family, is to build churches by preaching the gospel, making disciples and bringing people into the kingdom of heaven. 
One writer, Greg Morse, in Desiring God, said this, The expansion plan of God's kingdom in the Old Testament was through physical multiplication, something that excluded singles. Now, God's people march towards glory in the New Testament age through spiritual multiplication by disciple-making. The procreation mandate given to Adam is reissued through the coming of Christ. Go forth and multiply spiritual children. That's really interesting because it means that in a new way, no matter your status as married or single, you're intimately involved in the plans of the new creation. So you have Jesus come. He's a single man. He bears a spiritual family. Isaiah predicted that he would see his offspring. Uh, so this, this leader brings his people, his family. But then you fast forward 20 years on from this, and you get to the greatest missionary we've ever known, ever used by the Lord, was the Apostle Paul. And Paul, as we saw in our text in the letter to the Corinthians, reveals that he is a single man. Lives his whole life for the glory of Christ after being saved and made his mission to follow the Great Commission and make disciples and bring them into spiritual family. And though Paul was physically childless, he was certainly not lacking family, spiritual family. And he sees himself as a family man. He repeatedly uses familial language throughout the New Testament to show that the new creation, the new covenant is a spiritual family. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Timothy, my true child in the faith. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In the church, singles have a family. Singles have a spiritual family and marrieds have a new spiritual family as well. This reflects what Christ taught when he was on earth. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Totally change it. You think like an Old Testament Jew with their whole patriarchal thinking, ancestral thinking, land passed from you know, generation to generation to generation to generation, the clans, everything. It's all about the lines. It's all about the ancestry. And now the family of God becomes a spiritual family through entrance through Jesus Christ himself. It's radically different and wonderfully glorious and openly inclusive to anyone, no matter your status. And then Jesus gives a promise for those who are barren, for those who may never have children, for those who may never marry, and for everyone who's a Christian. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land. So if you become a Christian, you have to give up your own family, even if you're married. No one who's lost all those things for my sake in the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, not in heaven now. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So though you may not have children of your own if you remain single unto death, you have children, spiritual children. Though you may never own a house in Sydney, you have houses. It's whoever owns one here. It's yours. <laughs> Sweet. We just, our inheritance just went up. That's the promise of the new covenant. 
And so now we're all involved in a different way, no matter your marital status. And then in the end, all marriages will fade away. Marriage will no longer exist in the new, in the new kingdom in heaven and earth. Marriage will have fulfilled its purpose as a good and safe place to fill the earth and as a sign of the gospel. And there'll be only one marriage left, the marriage of the bride. The church will be married to Jesus Christ, the groom, and we'll all celebrate in the marriage supper. And that's the only marriage that will last into eternity, is our marriage to Christ as a church. And in one sense, we'll all be single forever never to be married again. And that will be good because that's God's perfect plan for all of us. So that's the story of singleness. And I think it helps to understand how it all fits together so that we, we don't just think of singleness as like this, oh, you missed out on marriage and, and therefore you just got to make do with the leftovers. No, no, no. Singleness now is, is, as we're about to see in the next point, is a vital part of God's plan for the church. So you might be thinking, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm single now, so what do I do? How do I live well as a single? That leads us to point two, the gift of singleness. If there's one key point to take away from the whole sermon, it's this. Like I said, I want you to receive and embrace your singleness as a gift. And for those who aren't, are married, I want you to receive and believe that singleness is a gift. What does that mean? Well, this is the point that Paul makes in his longest treatment on marriage and singleness in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Corinthians just become Christians. They needed clarity about how to sanctify the ordinary. They wanted to know what it means to be married, single, divorced, widowed, and sexual now that they are Christians. They were living in a Roman pagan world where sexuality, like in our day and every day in human history after the fall, was screwed up. So they wanted answers. And they write to Paul with a bunch of questions, which he answers in chapter 7 and 8. Questions like, should we still have sex or is that unspiritual? Should we get married or just abstain? If we're married to a non-Christian, should we get divorced? And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let me return to those verses in 7 to 9. I can't answer all the questions, but Paul here reveals a key. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is not all that Paul has to say about marriage. It's not just a place for sexual gratification. Read Ephesians chapter 5. But he's making a clear point. Paul's preference is that if possible, you can be single, you should be single. That it's good to remain single. Singleness is a gift from God. It's the clear teaching in that passage. Singleness is a gift gift from God. Marriage is also a gift, is the other half of that passage as well, in verse 7. Singleness is a gift, marriage is a gift. God gives the gift to different people at different times. But both of them are a gift. One is not necessarily better than the other. Both are good. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. 
Both are hard. Singleness is hard. Marriage is hard. Both have challenges. Both have benefits. Now, when Paul says that singleness or marriage is a gift, he's not saying it's like a special power or ability. People don't have the gift of singleness like they have the gift of tongues. You can either speak in tongues or you can't. And it's not like that with singleness. You either can be single or you can't be single. It's a gift of status. If you are single, you have the gift of singleness. If you are married, you have the gift of marriage. It's a God-given status so that you can serve him for his glory and use it for the upbuilding of his church and seeking out the lost. If your spouse dies, the gift of marriage is taken away and you receive the gift of singleness. If you get married, you lose the gift of singleness and receive the gift of marriage. Both are a grace. Both are a gift. Both are given by God to use for his glory. Now, we've all been given unwanted gifts in our time. Uh, you know, at Christmas time, and you unwrap it, and you, you instantly start thinking of all the ways you possibly could use that thing, and you think, oh, yeah, I could use that as a door, uh, not a doorstop. I could use it, uh, yeah, and you, you, that's when someone starts to justify how they want to use a gift. That's, you know, <laughs> that's when you know it's no good, and it gets put in the re-gift cupboard or gets given to salvos. And with the gift of singleness, we need to be careful that we don't treat it like this unwanted Christmas gift, like the person that doesn't actually know us well enough so they don't give us a gift that we like, like God doesn't really know what's going on in our heart, that we wanted to be married, and so he, he's given us gift of singleness, and it's like, oh, now we've got this thing. It's like, what do I do with it? We've got to be careful because God is holy and sovereign and all-knowing and all-loving and gracious. And therefore, as a result, if he gives you the gift of singleness, He's given it to you by his sovereign will, plan, and decree for this time in your life. So how is singleness a gift? Because often our default is to think it's, like we said at the beginning, it's negative. So how is it a gift? What's good about singleness? How is it a grace? I want to make two sub-points here. Firstly, Paul makes this point in the negative, And he shows that by being single, you are spared something. The gift of singleness means that you are spared the hardships of marriage. Look at verse 25 to 28 of the chapter. So if you go along, he has lots of things to say about marriage and divorce and living as you were called. And then verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed or the engaged, I have no command from the Lord. That means he has no saying from Jesus. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So he's saying, by the Holy Spirit, I tell you this. I think that in view of the present distress, that is, in a sinful world where there's so much going on and the time is short, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, don't get divorced. Like, do not seek a wife. Uh, sorry, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Look at 28 again. Those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. One of the ways in which, by the Holy Spirit, Paul wants to tell us that singleness is a gift is that it spares you from the worldly troubles of marriage. There are many wonderful benefits of marriage, but there's also many difficult parts as well. 
Remember, marriage is no fairy tale. It's a covenant entered into for life. If you do it according to what the Bible says, you make vows in sickness and in health, in poverty and in riches, in the good and the bad. There's a reason why divorce rates are so high, because marriage is hard. It brings trouble. It brings together two selfish sinners. There's a great book by Paul Tripp, When Sinners Say I Do. And that doesn't mean bliss. That means battle. Because sinners are like me, and I'm, I'm selfish. I want what Riley wants. And then you put me with another, married, uh, another person, my beautiful wife, Maddie, and she's a selfish person too because she's a sinner. I know, it's a shock. And then we battle because we're battling for what we want in our life when we're not following Christ properly. You may marry and end up with a severely sick or disabled spouse. Your spouse may cheat on you and break your heart. Or you may just fight and fight and fight and grow to hate each other. But now you've got kids and a mortgage and you're stuck. Or your spouse pretended to be one thing then became something else. Or your spouse walks away from Christ. Marriage brings worldly trouble. Not to mention all the everyday worldly troubles that living with other human beings brings and the ad kids. Sam Albury helpfully says this in his book. The fact is, both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. The temptation for many who are single is to compare the, the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness. Equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener. Whichever gift we have, marriage or singleness, the other can be seen as far more attractive. Our common assumption, marriage is better or easier, is simply not true. And then he says this poignant point. Seeing what I've seen in the last decade or so, I have to say I would choose the, and he's a single man, I would choose the lows of singleness over the lows of marriage any day of the week. I think being unhappily married must be so much harder than being unhappily single. Uh, and so it's quite a negative point, but it's part of Paul's point is, I would spare you the trouble of marriage. That's one of the gifts of singles. One of the troubles you don't have to deal with in your life is that of a spouse. Now, you may want that trouble, and you may want to walk into that, and Paul says, that's good. You, you are welcome to get married. But he's, he's like, I could spare you. <laughs> that's the gift. Uh, secondly, there's the positive side. So the, the negative side, spared the worldly troubles, the positive side of singleness is singleness provides you with a glorious opportunity. Singleness provides you with a glorious opportunity. And this is Paul's real heart. Look at verse 32 to 36. I want you to be free from anxieties. So he's talking to the church and the singles. The unmarried man is anxious about what? And this is how you should be. Anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man, well, he's anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests, his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, not sinful worldly things, just earthly things, normal, earthly, everyday things, how to please her husband. And then he, he leans in and says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, so you do what you feel called to do, but to promote good order and to secure 
your undivided attention to the Lord. Sorry, just to verse 35 there. That's his hope. He wants to free you from anxieties so that you can be anxious for the Lord. He wants to free you from having divided attention so you can have undivided attention for the Lord. And this was Paul's life and experience. His singleness enabled him to serve in unencumbered ways, um, unencumbered by the demands of family life. There's a certain level of world and earthly-based distraction that goes hand in hand with marriage. Certainly, all singles have a lot of worldly and earthly things they have to do as well. You know, everyone has bills to pay, houses to clean, jobs to do, friends and family to maintain. But there is a complexity, that's what Paul's saying, a craziness that goes along with married family life and a certain set of duties and responsibilities that can't be walked away from as a married person. They take up many hours a day that by necessity divide a married person's devotion to the Lord. Sam Albury helpfully says, Paul is not saying that married people have concerns and single people do not, but that those concerns are necessarily different. The single life is not meant to be free of all responsibilities. We still have friendships and family that we need to honour. But as Vaughan Roberts, another Anglican um, minister who's, who's a single man, writes, we're pulled in fewer directions than those who are married and therefore are free to give more time to the Lord's affairs. This is the gift of singleness. Paul is eager for the Corinthian church and for you and I to seriously consider singleness and receive it as a gift because it's an ability to be even more undivided to serve the Lord, freed from certain demands, duties and responsibilities so that you are more able to give your life away for your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his people, and for the cause of the lost, and for the broken and the hurting in the world. There's things that singles can do that marrieds cannot do. And Paul is desirous for the Corinthians to see that it's a gift, an opportunity, a possibility that opens up a whole world of service. As I prepared, you know, I probably... Maybe to my shame and ignorance, I probably, if I thought of my children, I would always think, I just really, really, really 99% hope they get married. And if they remain single, ah, oh, that's my honest. But after studying this week and studying this passage, I, I felt this sense from the Spirit like, oh no, I, I got a big category for this now. This is, this is good. This is a legitimate, beautiful way to serve the Lord as a single person. So singles, this is your unique gift and calling. It's the unique gift of your status that God wants you to receive and embrace. You're more free to serve the Lord with all you have. And this is certainly the case with the singles in our church. By God's grace, we have single men and women who give their lives away for the sake of the Lord, who count their life not as their own, and they pour themselves out for others. Whether it's caring for their housemates, babysitting for families, giving your needed single income, there's only one income, giving it away. Using your free time to meet up and read the Bible one-to-one -one with others. Investing in your friends from your life group, serving in one, two, three ministries. Not to mention all you do for your own family and your colleagues and your neighbours. Our singles are living this out. And so embrace it all the more, my friends. So if you're single, 
Is this how you view your singleness? As a gift from God, a gift that spares you from the troubles of married life and frees you for undivided attention to the Lord. That's the gift of singleness. Married, is that how you view your single friends? Or are you just constantly wanting to fix them up with someone else? Verse 38, Paul says, So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. It's a shocking verse, isn't it, to our, you know, our, our story, our thinking, our Disney world, you know. So singles, being single is not your identity. You're Christ. It's a status given to you to spare you from the hardships and worldly troubles of marriage and to provide you with the glorious opportunity of undivided attention to the Lord. Finally, I want to end with some application points. Point number three, sanctifying singleness. How do we sanctify it? Well, firstly, the first way to sanctify singleness is to just do everything I said in point two. Receive and embrace your gifting. The question I'd have for you is, are you making the most of your single life? And that is, are you making the most of your opportunity to give your life away for the cause of Christ? Not recklessly, not serving till you die and burn out, but are you making the most of it? Secondly, so the first way to apply it, receive and embrace your gift of singleness. Secondly, I want to say it's still good to want and pursue marriage. So don't think that if you're single, well, okay, well, I should just, because it means undivided attention to the Lord, I just shouldn't even want marriage now. I should only want to be single. That's not what Paul's saying. Marriage is a gift as well. So it's totally good and right to still want to be married, even if you are single. So, So what should you do if you're single and still want to be married? Well, there's so much we could say, but one thing I would say, and I took this from an article by a single man, Marshall Seagal, he said this, Find a fiancé on the front lines. Instead of making it your mission to get married, make your mission God's global cause and the advance of the gospel where you are and look for someone pursuing the same. Okay, so if, if your desire for marriage is good, don't make it your mission. Make your mission Jesus and then find someone who loves... Thanks, Siri. Um... Go hard for Jesus and then find someone who's also going hard for the Lord. Don't compromise. Don't compromise for marriage. Now, that might mean you might need to step out of our church sometimes or use online tools to find someone. But go after the cause of Christ and find someone who will be a part of that with you. Thirdly, singles, be real. Singleness is by no means easy. Today, I've wanted to make sure that we all understand that it is a gift and it is good and it's legitimate. But in no way is it easy. Loneliness is real. Fear is real. Sexual desire is real. Hurts are real. And so be real. Don't feel like you have to package up your life and present it free from troubles. Don't feel like because your struggles are different to married and families or that your struggles are because of marriage and families, but you can't share them. 
they're your struggles, and we love you. And we want to embrace them with you, even if it's hard for us to hear or we need the rebuking. So be real. You don't have to package it up or pretend. Be real like you already have been. To the marrieds, I'd say this. Embrace and keep on embracing the singles in our church into your family unit. The sing- I asked all the singles and I wrote to them this week to try and see how they're going. And they all shared on how well we do this as a church. But I want to just spur us on. Let's do this even better and include all the new people that are single as well and invite them to join our families. One family who's done this so well has been the Beatties with Anita. And I asked Anita to share a testimony on this and she wrote this to me. One of the things that brought me comfort when at times being single was particularly difficult was having supportive friends I could confide in. You know, the ones that you can laugh with, cry with, do real life with. The Beatties were my supportive crew. Mars, Lee, Milo and Cruz became family to me. Why is that? They were simply there for me through the good and hard times. They included me in their life and activities. They listened and prayed with me, for me. I remember Mars telling me that Lee was so empathetic toward my singleness situation that it would keep her up at night, thinking and praying for me, pleading to God to grant me the wishes of my heart. Milo and Cruz would say things like, hope you find someone you want to marry one day. And then would say after that, but I don't really want to share you with anyone. Bless their hearts. Bless your heart, Milo. I knew I could chat to each one of them about anything. And I absolutely appreciated their raw honesty when we conversed. The Lord had blessed our friendship over the years. He ultimately blessed us by being united in Christ, but also being able to call each other family on earth. I eventually became needy, beady, (laughs) and happily became the fifth wheel. Church, let's do that more and more. Murray and Leanne and Mylon Cruz, you've done a wonderful example um, for us to follow. And singles, sadly, us marrieds are so caught up by our worldly troubles so often and the anxieties of our married life and our kids, we're so obsessed with our lives or myopically focused on our kids that we often don't look up, we don't look out, and we just care for ourselves. And so call us out on that. We need to know. We need to know when we're letting you down. We need to know when we're not playing our part as your spiritual family. Yes, we should invite you in. Yes, we should be proactive. Yes, but sometimes we need the prod. And so you can help us by being good friends to us so that we don't neglect this calling. And finally, and most importantly, the answer in the end is not marriage, friendship, or family. Whether you're single or married, alone or surrounded, we need Jesus, our dearest and closest friend. Sam Albury says, The key to contentment as a single person is not trying to make singleness into something that will satisfy us. It is to find contentment in Christ as a single person. The key to contentment as a married person is not trying to build a marriage that can make us content. It is to find contentment in Christ as a married person. This is liberating. It means that my contentment is not contingent on my marital status or in the number and depth of my friendships. These are not the most significant determiners of what will make life ultimately work. As Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never 
first. Church, make your life about Jesus, whether you're married or single. Find your hope in Jesus, whether you're married or single. Love Jesus, whether you're married or single. Pour your heart out to Christ, whether you're married or single. Put all your hope in Jesus, whether you're married or single. And in so doing, you will feed upon him and you will never hunger and never thirst and you will have eternal life. So friends, today we're seeing the, the story of singleness. And we're seeing that in the new covenant, singleness really is a gift. As we go about making disciples and bringing people into a spiritual family, everyone has a role to play. No one's on the sidelines and everyone's included. And we've seen that it's possible and glorious that you can sanctify your singleness and live it all for the cause of Christ. And so friends, may we all do that as we follow him. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we recognize today that there's hurts, there's brokenness, there's loneliness, there's fears, there's anxieties, there's unmet desires, there's joys, there's grace. Uh, there's all of that. And we bring it to you as a church, as a body, as a family. And we ask that you would give us Christ. I pray for the singles that they may live with undivided devotion to the Lord. May they receive and embrace their calling for however long they're called to be single. Uh, and may they do it for your glory. And as a church, may we love our singles well, embrace and enfold them into our families. May we be spurred on by their undivided devotion to the Lord and may it raise the bar and the heat and the temperature of our whole church as it already is and so Lord I pray and ask that you would bless us as we pursue you whether married or single in Jesus name Amen